You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Brad McKeever. He is Principal and Director, National Director of Dental Services for LBA Haynes Strand, which is an accounting firm focused primarily on dental practices. And I love I love this opportunity to speak with Brad and, and speak with a, a company who's really focused. I think one of the things I'm always emphasizing and suggesting to the clients that I work with when they're trying to grow and scale their business is you have to find a niche, exploit that niche, really differentiate yourself, find a way to stand out from the crowd, and and picking a category like this is a great way to do it. So I'm very curious to have this conversation and how that played out, what they've been able to do since they've been so focused on the dental practice world. Uh, again, it's a great strategy, great insight. I'm excited to have this conversation. With that, Brad, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. So let's talk a little bit about background and how how you got into kind of dental practice world and how that played out. Was it a conscious choice? Did you fall into it? Um, tell us about the background and how you, I guess, how, how, how kind of the accounting practice developed and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Yeah. A bit of an atypical journey for the traditional CPA. Uh, most of us start out in the, you know, the big four and, and we work our way into private accounting or smaller firm world, or we stay in the big four and, and work our way up the ladder. Mm-hmm. My background was actually a little different. So I was uh, born and bred in the financial advisory industry and worked in the private wealth management field right. for a few years after getting out of my schooling. And then, um, you know, from there, I, I looked out into the landscape of my resume in the business world and decided a, a sales career would help broaden my um, my resume. And so I took that opportunity and, and sold medical devices for a few years and, and really got to learn the, the mindset and mentality of, of working with doctors and hospitals and purchasing groups and things of that nature and really saw it from the sales side, the product side of their yeah, world and how they yeah. leverage that, that technology in their day-to-day work. So fast forward a couple of years as I get ready to start a family and, and look at my next 10, 15, 30 years of, of work. <laughs> uh, medical device sales are great, but they also require, at that time, a pager on your hip and 24-7 access. Yeah. So I decided to go back towards my classical education and, and um, landed on uh, the CPA world to do so. At that time, I thought, well, let's go out and, and build a niche around doctors and here in the Charlotte community and, and many major metropolitan areas, working with doctors meant working with large hospital groups who, frankly, didn't really need or use a lot of outside small CPA, local CPA firms for their work. And so 
you know, based off of that conversation and really understanding what market I was entering, Dennis became a, a focus of mine as they are still primarily privately owned and still looking for good local advisors to help them kind of understand how to work through their practice financials to, you know, better their, uh, not only their practice profits, but, you know, how they leverage that profit into their personal lives. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think it's a good kind of story of finding that niche and, and identifying areas that you're not going to be able to serve well. And then, and then finding that audience, that target that, that you have kind of, unique capability or particular capability to serve based on where they're at with business. And I like this because it's a, it's a service business servicing service businesses. <laughs> so it's like a double, double layer here. As you kind of decided to focus on the dental practices, what did you see being their needs sort of above and beyond just kind of straight up, you know, tax prep, you know, kind of services? Like when you, when you look more strategically at, you know, accounting and advisory work uh, around finances, what are the needs that you saw within the dental practice space? Yeah. I mean, I think when I go back and look at kind of launching into the market at, at the very basic level, their initial need was availability and access, right? Both to their advisor as well as current financial data. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a pretty obvious checkbox in today's environment. You know, a decade ago, it wasn't. Um, yeah. It should have been maybe, but it wasn't. And so I think that was an easy box to check. You know, once we got beyond that, it was very clear that, you know, the average practice owner, when they get a balance sheet and a P&L, they look at it and go, huh, what, what, is that, <laughs> what does that mean? And, and so, yeah, they understood a taxable income and, and what net income equaled in tax payments, but they didn't always understand how to translate that into comparing to their industry standards and their peers, right? How, and then that's in most industries, right? That's a good benchmark to start with is yep. how do I compare to my peers and in, in industry averages? And that P&L, unless it's properly construed and, and pushed into other management reporting, you know, can, can leave you a little short on understanding that information. And so I built kind of our initial platform based off of translating that data into, you know, basic chart mentality that that doctors could could um, take five minutes to review and understand where they are at interesting and then we could we huh. could expand beyond those five minutes into deeper conversations based off of you know however their ratios were being presented to yeah so it's almost like uh, uh, leveraging their familiarity with looking at a patient chart and graphs and you know the the data they're getting back from you know reports and pathology and things like that and, and kind of treating it the same way from a financial point of view in their business yeah we wanted to break it into bite sizes that would allow them to get that snapshot. And from that snapshot, you could you know drill down deeper into areas that were opportunities for improvement. Yeah. And what were some of the sort of things typically that you would look at, you know, given the kind of business model of a dental practice, you know, either key metrics, KPIs, you know, critical numbers, th- things that end up being pretty common benchmarks of cost practices that you could look at to kind of evaluate how a practice was doing, you know, identify, you know, areas of focus. What, what did you, how did you kind of boil the ocean, you know, down to a handful that, that made sense for practice owners? Yeah. And, you know, fortunately in dentistry, there are, you know, several national publications, regional newsletters, you know, national consultancy firms and surveys that help us, you know, grab some key statistics out there. And and so we, we leverage the, you know, research that was at our fingertips. And, you know, generally in dentistry, uh, practice owners are looking at, you know, five buckets of major expenses. Of course, these buckets have sub buckets, so to speak, but mm-hmm. they really want to focus on their staff costs, both on the admin and, and clinical side, um, occupancy, um, you know, rent, repairs, maintenance, utilities, et cetera. Their supplies costs, you know, including both lab and, and just traditional dental supplies and then general overhead, uh, mark, uh, and then of course, marketing, right? Mm-hmm. Those are the, generally the five areas that we started with. You know, from there, the conversation 
expands based off of where the practice is in their life cycle. You know, are they established? Are they a startup? Are they growing? Are they adding locations? So depending on the life cycle of the practice and, and its performance, we might dive deeper into, you know, clinical cost and is it time to expand to a you know another two rooms and add a hygienist for example yeah it's interesting because i think a, a lot of people you know a lot of people treat accounting as essentially bookkeeping where i've got to keep records to be able to pay taxes at the end of the year and and i think that it's a missed opportunity to really create insight around your business facets of your business uh, i love that you're looking at at stages you know based on the stage of the company and stage of the practice you know what are the important metrics or what are the expected kind of metrics at different levels if you're in a high growth scenario you know how that's different than if you're in a more of a optimization like you've you've saturated or you you feel like you've you know grown your practice to where you want to be and you really want to optimize the finances of it, you know, those are very different objectives and very different goals. And you would treat or you'd use your financial data very differently to kind of evaluate those things. What are, I mean, I guess, are there there different KPIs as you're looking at the different stage of practices, sort of different KPIs or different areas of focus that come up as you go from kind of practice to practice, given their their growth trajectory or the phase of growth that they're in? Yeah, they are. They they certainly become goal-oriented based off of the, the practice owner they're working with, the geography they're in. And, and what are their long-term goals. But I would generally say when when you're an established practice, and we can talk about what that means maybe a little later, but if you're established practice, you really are honing in on your true margins and how do those margins compare to where you could and should be per those industry standards. In the, in the startup phase, um, and that's for a solo location, kind of your traditional quote-unquote mom and pop, uh, doctor-owned and led dental practice. With startup doctors that are launching a practice from scratch, right, a de novo start, you can't use those industry standards. They don't make any sense, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? And so there we're focused on, you know, new patient count, production per month, and kind of establishing what a lot of doctors have referred to as their their BAM score. And uh, I don't know how friendly, family-friendly your podcast is. Um, so <laughs> That's I'll, okay. I'll, Feel free to use whatever you need to use. <laughs> right. Yeah. So they'll, they'll, they call it their BAM score. So yeah. it's their bare ass minimum, right? And so yeah. that's when we're trying to help them back into when do they get to industry standard as their initial target, right? Yeah. What, what does our revenue run rate need to be and on, and on what hiring cycle for staff do we get them to industry standard? And so that's the startup doctrine. And then as we get into our expanding locations, right, you're adding your second, your third, your fourth location, you need to start adjusting for the fact that you as the doctor owner aren't doing all the doctor work, right? You're not yeah. doing all the doctor production. And so now you have to factor in paying someone else um, at the associate level to help assist you generate your revenue. What does that do to the bottom line? Yeah, well, that's an interesting one because I think I see that come up a lot, certainly in early stage companies where you've got an owner operator, and you know we're kind of looking at the the finances or looking at the numbers, and you know I'll, I'll often sit down with with uh, with a prospect that's that's looking to grow and scale the business, and I'll ask them, well, how's your profitability? And they'll they'll say, oh, it's great, it's like twenty percent or twenty five percent, you know, they'll show me all the money they they've taken home, and I'm like, okay, yeah, but how much how much do you pay yourself? How much are you working in the company? How much are you paying yourself? And then how much profit do you generate? And they're like, oh well, you know, I, you know, I bring home a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And think, but okay, yeah, but what is it? You know, how much are you working? <laughs> well, I'm working eighty hours a week. I'm like, okay, well, you better be taking home a couple hundred thousand dollars a year if you're working eighty thousand a week. And and just whole kind of this whole issue of paying yourself as you know as an operator, you know, for the work that you're doing in the business versus profit. And oftentimes when we actually do the math and we figure out what a market rate is for the work they're doing, their profitability goes from you know twenty twenty five percent to you know five percent or minus five percent. <laughs> 
the severity of the situation. I guess talk to me about how how you kind of normalize or or deal with the fact that you know a lot of these folks are going to be owner operators. You know where they're they're working in the business as well as owning the business. How does that change the dynamics for you? Yeah, I think we built um, you know again based off of kind of the way that the industry standards have for decades kind of evolved. Is doctors have that's one good thing that the industry has done in dentistry is they've always kind of set their standards at not net income but net operating income, right? Yeah. So what what's what are your margins pre quote unquote doctor pay, right? And so this allows you to take the overall expense margins and normalize them across the board because it's not based off of, you know, whether you are the owner doctor or you have a associate doctor doing the doctor production. Those are removed from the stats and we chart those for our practice owners so they can see their true operating margins at, you know, the kind of industry standard and national nationally accepted uh, process. You know, then beyond that, we help them see their cash flow based off of all their other fringes, their salaries, what they pay associates, what they might have in debt service so they can see their true take-home dollar to themselves based off their production stats as well as you know the, all the tax items, all the tax boxes we have to check of you know maximizing where your W-2 should be versus your owner distributions based off of your goal set of you know retirement planning or health insurance needs or whatever a particular practice owner has. Mm-hmm. And so an area that we focused on early with that KPI review that we did uh, was being able to show them both their industry standard operating margins as well as that below that line where is the money actually getting into your pocket versus where is it going to your debt service, to your associate, or to other expenses that are considered non-operating? Got it. Oh. No, and I can see it, it sort of separating that out because a nice kind of apples to apples comparison, not only between companies, but actually as you know, as the company gets bigger or as a, you know, a practice starts to grow, you can, you can still kind of plot that regardless of how many practices they have or how many locations they have and because right. a good benchmark. Talk to me about how, you know, I guess to the extent that you see kind of a different strategy or, or a different operating model if uh, a owner is looking at just kind of you know creating one or two locations and you know really kind of maximizing it versus I would call a, you know, a more entrepreneurial practice owner who's who's looking to really do you know make a play at you know dozens of practices in potentially multiple cities and, and stuff like what's the I guess what do you notice as being the difference or what's the strategy or the approach difference for you when it comes to the uh, kind of the financial advice side of it? Uh, yeah, it's a great question and uh, one that we certainly spent a lot of time the last, I'd say, three to four years as, you know, here in the, the North Carolina market, the entrepreneurial approach to dentistry has become a, a growing phenomenon, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I'd start by saying that you know, there's not a right or a wrong way, right? When you think about the practice owners we work with, sure. and we work with a ton of multi-location owners that, you know, those that's their goal set, and they're doing a fantastic job of, of breeding a great culture, a family-based culture in their practice locations. Um, and they have an approach where that's where they want to go to market. We have other family offices that are have been solo doctor-owned and led for, for years and will continue to be, and that's, that's their comfortable place. Both of those owners can have vastly successful careers. Um, it's just a matter of what how they want to take it to market. I mean, so we try to understand the personality. In my mind, it starts with the person, right? We got to understand the doctor, what yeah. are their goals? And even if they want to grow a multiple practice location, how do they want to do it, right? Do they want to do it as the leading entrepreneur? Do they want to stay the doctor, right? And bring yeah. in professionals to help advise them on their growth strategy. And we have worked with practice owners on both sides of that equation, right? Who have brought in folks, both 
external advisors as well as internal hires to help them lead and grow their practices. And they've been that clinician, right? Establishing the culture, making sure that dentistry stays the number one target. And we've had other doctor owners who are more entrepreneurial in nature and, and have taken on a lot of that growth profile themselves. So I think it really depends on the person. But I think if you want to be a growing practice, one of the additional KPIs, so to speak, that you need to bring in is really understanding the structure of your debt, its repayment cycle, and how that affects your debt covenants. And that's one of the primary leverage points that keep you know growth down for a practice who wants to acquire and build additional locations is making sure they understand their debt model mm-hmm. um, and how your EBITDA and your net operating income affect your debt service uh, ratios for ongoing growth. Yeah. And where, where are you finding, um, I mean, how, how are most of these practices finding the capital to do the growth? Are they self-financing? Are they going, they're taking on debt? Are they doing equity deals? I mean, what have, what have you noticed as being the general model for, for this kind of professional practice? Yeah, the general model, especially if you're, you know, sub 20 uh, locations and, and you're or hoping to grow into that range is still mm-hmm. kind of bank-led debt financing, okay. uh, maybe with a sprinkling of some seller financing or, or personal investments in that. But bank-led debt financing, you know, the, again, the dental industry is very fortunate to have a, a lot of really good banks out there that do a great job of lending to dentists, are invested in their success, and want to grow with them. And so it's a great field for being able to grow through partnering with a bank versus some other industries just aren't that fortunate, right? Yeah. And that's got to do with the margins and the success rate of the average practice is just phenomenal. Yeah. And, and just the formula is reasonably known. You kind of you kind of know what you need to go into it. You know how to operate it. You know what it's, what it's going to take to be successful. And most of the debt is used for building out offices, equipment, things like that, marketing, or what, how, how are most of yeah. these people yeah. so using build, you know, you know, a build out for a startup, so equipment, construction, working capital, marketing, or looking at practice acquisitions if a yeah. you know, retiring doctor is looking to exit, you know, can they buy that practice from that doctor? Yeah. and help continue that practice location. Yeah. You, you mentioned it, but I'd be curious to talk a little bit more about it, is this whole, you know, what, do, what does the owner want to do? Do they want to stay the dental professional? Do they want to become the CEO, the operational uh, head? Do they want to, you know, focus on finding deals? I mean, there's, there's, there, you know, as you, as you grow, there's lots of different roles you could fill. And I think that kind of diagnosing or figuring out what role that practice owner wants to play is a really important one. And I, my guess is if you get it wrong or if they don't choose right, it's, it can be very difficult. What, what have you noticed about that process and how have you helped owners really kind of answer that question effectively so they're going to be successful? Yeah, I think when you, this is a great question as far as this, as scaling goes. And I shared with some, several of our practice owners that often, you know, a, a dental practice and a CPA firm don't operate too much indifferent from one another, right? Mm-hmm. We have different different titles, but we've you know we've got doctors and associates and and hygienists and office administrators and a CPA firm, much like a dental practice. And I think there's been a lot of interplay between as I looked at my practice and trying to you know scale our growth both with the amount of practices we service, but also with the services we provide. One of the areas that I had to add to our pipeline of services was the ability to sit down with a with a doctor and attach their financial and life goals with an organizational and uh, and risk assessment process where we could help show them, you know, here's where you are today, here's where you want to, where you want to be in five, eight, ten years. Let's talk about the roles that are going to be required along that growth profile 
and really lit, legit, literally draft out an org chart for them and help them understand how as they grow, their needs will grow and how they can fill that org chart out. Yeah, yeah, really kind of putting, that, I think that having a map, having a, a plan, a map for what the future is going to look like and then identifying, well, what, what seat do you want to sit in in the future? And then how how are you going to fill these other seats? But technically, but also, you know, from a culture point of view, from a style point of view, how do you make sure you get the right people surrounding you so that you can you can be successful? And, and it's, it's about you know, being on the same page. Sometimes it's about creating some diversity, you know, bringing people then in that might think differently than you are or add skills and capabilities. Uh, but that kind of organizational planning is a key one, I find. And, and a lot of times, you know, if, if you don't get it right, you can spend a long time undoing that, <laughs> trying, trying to rebuild that. It can be painful. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, applying some of these things to other professional services. I mean, I think the benefit of uh, the dental practice is that it's you know, it's it's quite well known. The benchmarks are there. But if if you're in other professional services, what are the general things that you think become important when you look at kind of the numbers, you know, looking at how you collect data, financial data, other kind of data to make better business decisions uh, around the growth and scaling of the company? What are some key things that you would you would look at, you know, for, for other professional services, not just dental? Yeah, I think um, timeliness is, is one that you know, no matter what industry you're in, the timeliness of your financial data and, of course, the accuracy of it. How quickly can we get our hands on the data? And then how do we combine both the quote-unquote tax or CPA accounting side of it with the practice management operational side of it? And so, so many professional services live in two worlds, right? They have an accounting system separated from their production system. And so, how do how can we build a management philosophy that allows you to look at both of those and and as real time as possible that that your budget allows, right? So I think that's timeliness is certainly one. And I guess I could maybe expand what I call the three T's, the four T's, considering I just started with the timeliness. But yeah, sure. yeah. What, what I talk a lot about with my team as as, as we've grown is technology training and trust. And I think that spreads across other professional services. And I know it, even in dentistry it applies. I think, you know, being aware of the technologies that exist and how you can utilize them in, in your in your business to give better service to your client base, whether that's dental clients or if you're a, a law firm. But leverage technology and then train your staff to appropriately use that technology to be an advisor and give, you know, access to more information to your client base. And I think that breeds trust both in your clients to come to you when they need answers, but it also allows the doctor, the CPA, the attorney to trust their staff that they've been equipped with the right information and training to give the, the end user you know, the client, the patient, the information they need to go on about their day and help build their business and make their life better. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, I think that the um, uh, it's always a challenge of kind of figuring out what are the tools uh, that we should really you know, implement and do we buy them? Do we build them? I've seen a lot of companies, you know, spend a lot of money on, <laughs> on technology and end up really not getting the return that they hoped. Yeah, uh, not using it. Well, yeah, I think it, it's interesting because they haven't operationalized it. They haven't figured out how to, you know, get their entire team, you know, their, their team, the customers, uh, you know, patients, uh, clients that they have using it as well. And 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 sometimes it's wishful thinking. Sometimes they haven't done their, they really have investigated it to figure out, well, how how hard is it to use or how likely 
really are people going to use it? You know, and then they they end up spending a lot of money on something that ends up gathering dust or or worse, making their systems more complicated. What other any other kind of best practices or things that you've learned in in working with some of these folks? You know, things that typically are missed in professional services in terms of uh, things that aren't managed particularly well or, or things that are not considered that, you know, later end up becoming a problem and you have to kind of go back and do a lot of rework? Uh, yeah. I mean, if I think back about what what experiences that some of our folks have shared from just putting my CPA hat back on mm-hmm. would be one of their largest line items that it does not show up in their accounting software, in their P&L, is the tax expense that the individual owner pays, right? Most of these practices are flow-through owners, meaning yeah. they're an S-corp partnership or you know sole proprietor. And so that net income hits their 1040 and there's a tax bill due, right? Yeah. And so one of the things that a CPA is you know known for is filing taxes and trying to develop tax strategy. What we find a lot of these services is one of their largest line items is that the tax checks they write to the government every year. And so managing those tax outcomes throughout the year so that they're not caught with any surprises is incredibly important as they try to build a budget and cash flow model for the growth of their businesses. If they have to all of a sudden pay taxes they're not expecting, it takes money out of their pocket that they might have had other plans for. Yeah. And so even though it's not on the P&L, it has to be something that a professional services owner is aware of. Yeah. Uh, you, if you are growing, you are going to owe more taxes unless you put strategies in place that help offset that growth. Yeah. Right. And it's not the worst thing in the world to write a, a check to the government. <laughs> right. Uh, that means you've been successful. But at yeah, least exactly. be aware, be aware that it's coming. Know how much it's going to be. And if you are going to put strategies in place, and I think this is sometimes forgotten, if you're if you're going to put strategies in place to reduce the taxes and you want to grow know that that can impact your ability to go capture more debt to grow. Um, and so understanding how all those components work together is something that's often left on the table. Yeah, that's a fascinating one. I've seen that happen again and again, where where people have been you know extremely aggressive on tax avoidance strategies and, and they've done a great job, but then they go to, uh, you know, Borrow, you know, half a million dollars, a million dollars to do a, a build out or something, and 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 the you know bank will look at them and say, well, look, we, you're not you're not bankable. I mean, we can't we can't loan you this because you're you know you can't you don't you're not showing profit. <laughs> you're, not, you know, you're not you know the way that you've done it. You know, and then you get into this game of trying to show them. Well, no, I really have developed profit, but I just you know I've done this to avoid the taxes. So like uh. so yes, there's there is uh, a need to look at your plans and look at your goals and. and you know, anticipate if you're, you know, you're going to be going out and, uh, you know, either getting debt or, or selling the company or doing an acquisition in three, four, five years out. And if you don't, you know, show the the income that is going to be what the valuation is based on, you may actually end up hurting yourself in terms of, you know, what the what the transaction looks like. So, yeah, I think that having a real good understanding of, well, what strategy are you employing? Uh, why are you employing them? What are the trade-offs? And, and how is it going to impact you over the coming years is a, is a is a good one. And I think a lot of people end up falling down on it. What else do you see that, you know, kind of drives, if you've kind of think through the, you know, successfully built a practice, you're looking at doing uh, a sale. What are the other factors for you that go into kind of that valuation side when you're, you know, looking at, you know, either a, a transaction or uh, doing a some kind of sale of the practice? What factors into the money or the, the terms or the valuation that you're going to get? Sure. 
Yeah, and, and again, in dentistry, there are some, um, I'm fortunate to have a long history of industry guidelines. Now, they continue to change and update based off of current markets. But, you know, historically, solo dental practices really clung to the idea of a percentage of collections as a primary valuation driver. Uh, cash flow is always a valuation driver. Um, and as we've grown into the multi-location PE world, of course, EBITDA and multiples of EBITDA become the primary discussion points. So, so you know, owners need to be aware of those items if they're looking at exit strategy and, and working to, you know, properly position those specific metrics. But I tell you, the one thing that I think um, has has rang true more the last maybe nine to twelve months than than the prior is culture. You know, dentist and dentistry is um, one of the best groups of clients that that I've ever worked with as far as just you know how they care about their patients, how they care about their staff. And so, as I've had several doctors buy practices and or sell practices over the, the last nine, 12 months where they've got plenty of buyers, right? And they've taken lower offers based off of a cultural fit because they care so much about the transition going well. That's not every doctor, but my experience has been that they, they really are a heartfelt in making sure that their staff and their patients have a great experience after they transition out of practice. And so culture has been something that um, as I've worked with a lot of a lot of folks on the buy side, right, that that them being able to make sure that they can identify their mission statement for that practice and their goal for it has been an important part of the conversation that we want to help them bring to the table when they're going to make an offer on a practice. Yeah, and I think that's a, a good insight. I've worked with some medical practices, and and yeah, one of the big things they. Uh, we're focused on is, you know, during acquisitions, like you just need to make sure you have a cultural fit because the last thing you want to do is is make an acquisition and have, you know, all the staff leave and all the patients leave in six months because then you're like, like, what was the point? You know, we just blew a whole bunch of money and, you know, we don't get, we're not getting the return that we bought. Uh, any, and in terms of time frame, when, if, if you have a, you know, a professional services practice who, you know, has ambitions of doing, doing a sale, you know, selling their company, what is the time frame that you kind of need to start Start preparing for this. Is this you know a couple months before you hope to sell? A couple of years before you sell? What is your general kind of heuristic when it comes to you know when you start taking actions to prepare yourself and your company for sale? Yeah, I think in an ideal world, which you know frankly doesn't exist a lot, right? But in an ideal world, you probably start five years out yeah. and really trying to take that you know first couple of years to get your systems and processes in place, well document what you're doing, try to grow along that that stretch of time. That way, as you get into that three year look back, um, you have a really clean set of books, easily identifiable EBITDAs, cash flows, and collection modeling, um, and processes and systems in place that you can transfer to a new owner. Yeah. Now, the reality is that doesn't happen, right? The reality <laughs> is somebody wakes up one day and they. They say, hey, let's go sell a practice or they're just ready to retire. Yeah. You know, we've, we've all seen that and, and you can get that done, right, quickly and specifically in the dentistry world. So if, if you're not going to start five years out and really process it, I think if you give yourself the ability to look at, a, you know, a 12 month, 12 to 18 month period, you can still get a lot done in that 12 to 18 months to take your practice to market. Yeah at, you know, a max value that, that you're able to versus just throwing it out on the market, you know, two to four weeks after you decide you want to list it. Yeah, you're going to get hurt. <laughs> Valuation is going to get hurt on that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I just had this conversation with a client the other day and we were talking about, you know, kind of the five-year plan and, you know, the, there was this like, well, I'm not really sure. I don't really have any ambitions to sell, but I'm, you know, I'm not quite sure. And my advice was, you know, you, you always want to kind of be operating a business that is highly sellable. You know, I'd rather have the option to sell and, and not, not take it then need the option to sell and not be able to do it because you you know the fact is you never know you never know you're going to wake up one day you're going to want to do something different situations can change uh, life events can happen 
where you know having a, a well honed uh, sellable company can be a huge asset and the reverse if you haven't really thought about it and you get stuck in kind of a fire sale it can really be a, a value destruction kind of situation so good advice good insights uh, Brad if people want to find out more about you uh, about LBA Haynes Strand what's the best way to get that information yeah certainly they could email me direct at um, Brad McKeever at LBAHS.com so that's B-R-A-D-M-C-K-E-I V as in Victor E-R at lbhs.com. So it's a mouthful, but that's my email. And I'm happy to be available via email. They can also look at us up in a couple places. Uh, so www.lbahs.com. And again, specific to our dentistry niche, uh, our website is yourdentalaccountant.com. Excellent. I will make sure that all those links and the email are in the show notes so people can grab those and get a hold of you. Brad, this has been a pleasure. I love talking with folks who have developed uh, a focus, a niche, carved out a good strategy. Uh, it, it's always fascinating to hear the insights that you can develop once you really get into a space and own it. So thank you for making the time. Thank you for sharing your insights. I think it's been really valuable for our audience. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I had a great time. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.